0: modell is a producer musician composer and film historian he's also one of the nation's leading silent film experts and accompanist company nobody, nobody is, can say that word uh, accompanist Kyle, good enough <laughs> i play the a piano yes yes he <laughs> plays the piano
1: Whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. Hi, I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, presenter, home video label, etc., etc. This is episode 47. We are recording this mid April 2022. And this is uh, actually episode 47, but there is also an appendix following separately. When I am joined, as always, by co-host and co-producer Kerr Lockhart. How are you, Kerr? Hello, Ben. Happy spring. Happy spring. Yes, the the pollen and the weather has finally caught up with the calendar.
2: Yes, and looking towards a calendar of more and more in-person performances and times for fans of silent film to get together and see each other and laugh together in a room or weep or sob. Yeah, or commiserate <laughs> or complain about
1: the print or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, it, it It is happening. I don't know how it's going for my fellow film accompanists, but at least for me, it's a slow melt. It's coming back online but because every single art house or any venue you might play is reopening at their own safety and comfort level, it's still two or three live shows a month. And looking at Nitrateville, it looks like it's still mostly Buster Keaton. (laughs) <laughs> well, people need to laugh. There are yep. two excellent new books on Keaton. So much the better. I, I've got the show of Wings coming up within summer to piggyback on top of all that. But it's slowly starting to happen and hopefully it will continue to do so as as the, the weeks and months go on. It's, it's, you know, one thing to keep in mind for listeners is that there is a lag between, oh, it's okay to do this. Let's start planning. And then there's always a two or three months or more, you know, and every venue is different. You know, some places can say, okay, okay, we're open, good, and then the next month something happens and there's some places where things get planned months in advance. It'll, it'll happen. I, I, I certainly hope so anyway.
2: One of the films we're going to talk about today is a staple, really, at least a staple of Marion Davies' career, one of the two best known of her films, which is The Patsy.
1: Yeah, not to be confused with the Jerry Lewis version. Not, not <laughs> well, the at same, all. Not, this, is a, this is a different, different storyline completely. Interestingly <laughs> enough,
2: The Patsy, I did not know this, was a stage play. And as hmm. we record here in April of 2022... In New York, there's a person performing a one-woman version of the play, The Patsy.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, it's running somewhere downtown. I didn't realize it was originally a play. I did notice uh, in looking at the opening credits earlier today that the scenario is by Agnes Christine
2: Johnson, who also adapted Beverly of Graustark*. So you had kind of a wonderful, I don't know, zen, uh, (laughs) subconscious or unconscious experience that you went through.
1: Yeah, I accompanied the Patsy at St. Francis College. It's a college in Brooklyn right near Borough Hall. Outside of COVID, I'll do three or four shows a semester there. And they're not really shows. They're performances for students, but they're also open to local seniors. So there's a a mix of of the audience. There's a a dozen college students in the back row. I hope they're watching. And then a, a handful of adults in the front. I talk often about how something will come out of my hands is the expression I have, meaning that as I've started playing something and I look down and go, oh, how about that? Something is completely either unconscious or some part of my consciousness in memory banks has just sort of kicked in. You know, I'll have an experience where I'm playing for a film that I haven't played for in seven or eight years and a love theme that I came up with during the last time I played for it comes back up and like, oh yeah, that piece. So I'll be honest... I was a little distracted, didn't have time to preview the Patsy again, but it's not full of twists and turns, and I I knew I'd be able to get through it. We're going to hear the opening title music through the first scene. And what was interesting for me is... You hear the opening title music, the peppy opening title music, which I think is always important to let the audience know how much fun they're in for. And then you hear it die down and to that first opening title, that exposition title that sets up the first scene. And then I just started playing something that could kind of work as a sort of marking time vamp. And then it fades in on the family eating soup in time back and forth, the spoon up to the mouth, down to the bowl, back and forth. And it was exactly what I would have played had I watched the film and noodled with it. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, how how about that? And I just sort of went with it and it was... And then developed it into a couple of other things that just sort of fit the family tension, and then also the interplay between Marie Dressler and Dell Henderson. It was fun to get to do the film again, having been on the trajectory of Marion Davies' silence pre nineteen twenty eight. We're almost completely caught up now, and then seeing the peak and the, one of the last uh, silent films that she made for Cosmopolitan at MGM. So this is this is recorded live in performance. At Saint Francis College in Founders Hall, I am playing a Steinway A that is kept in excellent shape. My microphone is a zoom H two N that I have placed just behind the music rack facing right into the piano. So it's closed mic'd, but it sounds nice. Yours truly, Accompanying the Patsy, starring Marion Davies and directed by King Vidor at St. Francis College in Founders Hall. <laughs> That's the opening title sequence leading into the film's first scene. And playing something that just came right out of my hands. I don't know if I played that same music the last time I accompanied the film or not. There is this flow you can get into as a film accompanist, and if you can trust that and give yourself over to it. It's just something I've, I learned from doing comedy improv years ago, just to stop thinking and let, let things happen, and your own instincts are pretty pretty cool. The other funny thing that happened when I was playing for the film is one of the two gentlemen that Marion Davies and her sister's characters are fond of is a, a guy named Lawrence Gray, who comes in, and he's kind of like a William Haynes, but he was busy, kind of, you know, like, well, we'll get Lawrence Gray to do these funny bits. And I couldn't figure out why he looked familiar. At first I thought, oh, he, maybe he looks like William Haynes, but then he realized he doesn't. But there was something else. The first time we see him, he comes into the country club and he pretends he's a waiter. And he walks over to the table where the family is sitting. And he does some business with a small plate, flipping it over, flipping it over and over and over. And then he does another thing where he pulls out his right arm at an angle and places the plate on it and then pretends to drop it and catches it the last time. And I remembered this. I had just seen the same actor do the same business in Stage Struck. And I thought, am I crazy? And I looked it up on IMDb. And sure enough, it's Lawrence Gray. The reason I recognized the physical business is I learned how to do it. Before COVID, I was going to the NYC Physical Comedy Lab organized by John Townsend and several other people in the uh, circus and variety arts community. And I learned how to do the plate. It's called manipulation is the fancy word for it. Doing that thing with the plate or you do it with a platter and then you hold out your own chicken wing is what I've, I've learned to call that. <laughs> and you pretend to drop something. I know how to do that with a, a derby. You know, the derby you see behind me on the silent comedy watch party isn't a hat, a hat you wear. It's, it's a, man, a manipulator. It's a triple weight so that you can flip it around and do stuff. So I learned a lot of – I need to practice it. But I learned how to do all that material, the chicken wing thing and, and tossing it around and stuff like that. Well, so. now
2: you're in trouble because we're going to demand to see hat tricks on the yeah. watch party. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got
1: to practice them. But, but I thought it was this this weird confluence of things like the the only reason I realized it was the same guy as the one in the stage truck is he was doing the plate manipulation. The same. I mean, I found the two clips – And it's the same guy, same business. It's really funny.
2: That's something that comes out in the James Curtis biography of Buster Keaton, that people carry these uh, tricks with them. And it was a valued uh, piece of inventory. Oh. Yeah, so mm-hmm. every
1: everybody did a lot of different kinds of things. No, it wasn't like everybody specialized. And this is one of the things, if you've listened over the years to the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, and that's something he and Frank Santopadre would talk about, how in old school, or old world show business, everybody could dance, sing a little, mm-hmm. uh, do some card tricks or, or whatever. It wasn't just like, I just do this, and I can't do anything else.
2: Well, we lost Gilbert, and I know that you have a a really special experience on the podcast that's appropriate for this podcast
1: yeah there was a another overlap which nobody was planning and it wasn't intended at all no you went on Um, to
2: talk about uh kovacs Kovacs. yeah
1: this is one of the last events that josh mills had worked out for the centennial we got ourselves a book on on gilbert godfrey's amazing colossal podcast Frank Santopadre called me a few weeks before we were supposed to tape, and he said, do you have a keyboard or a piano you could bring? Well, I said, sure, I can bring a keyboard. They didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew I was his film accompanist, and maybe we'd have some fun with it. Okay. And we do the show, and Gilbert really knew his Kovacs history. The four of us were just really engaged, and he was just really into it. And then at one point, Gilbert turns to me and just says, so, well, since you're so good on the organ...
0: <laughs> no one's ever done that joke with organists I, ever. I want to <laughs> narrate a short movie okay. and have you... Okay, it starts off with a farm boy working out in the field. Now he spots a beautiful girl picking daisies. Locking
1: on his face the way I watch a screen. He builds up the courage to walk over to her. I'm anticipating okay, where is he going to go?
0: She looks at him (laughs) lovingly.
1: And I kind of guess, but I also know. Now the evil land baron shows up. (laughs) It's Gilbert Godfrey, and you really don't know where this is going to
0: go, and I'm ready for anything. (laughs) He wants to take the farm boy's farm from from him. three,
1: four feet away. We're locking eye contact, and I'm playing. Now,
0: for some unknown reason, they're now in the big city.
1: And he just keeps coming up with one thing, and then another thing, and I keep morphing (laughs) it.
0: He went from the the perils of Pauline to the crowd. the, The land baron ties the girl to the train tracks. The farm boy is in a rush to save her. He saves her at the last minute. They throw their arms around each other and
1: kiss. He tells this whole little story, and he and everybody, we all cracked up, and and it went really, really well.
0: The end. Oh, that was... So terrific. Thank you.
1: That's the shortest movie I ever played. Come back when I do intolerance. To go from being a fan to sitting there doing a comedy bit, improvised with Gilbert was I mean I was kind of aware in the moment, I thought, holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> what is happening, you know? And all of my comedy improv training came right back because that's all about eye contact. You have to lock eye contact with, with your fellow performers and be ready for absolutely anything. So it was this this overlap between comedy improv and film improv. And yeah. the unexpected quality of Gilbert Gottfried, that anything could happen. Anything could happen. And, and what happened was that I think he had so much fun with it, two more times during the episode, out of nowhere he just turned to me and just started up again. The second and third iterations were more and more outrageous and outlandish. I think you realize, oh, this is a lot of fun. I could do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> it was a lot of fun and an honor to, to get to experience that. It's over. We get pictures taken, me, the four of us. Later on, I posted the picture, and Frank quickly commented this is the worst usual suspects reunion <laughs> And Josh and I just look at each other and go, what the, What? What? What just happened? <laughs> <laughs> it was a treat and an honor, and to, to paraphrase or quote the Albert Gridley routine from Kovex, it, it will st- remain etched in my memory forever. It is as if it happened yesterday.
2: You know, what's the great paradox of Gilbert is, at first blush, he is outrageous and a, a transgressor and a line crosser. Hmm. But as the podcast demonstrated, this is a guy who loved tradition and loved all the sources and the origins. And you suspect that a lot of the people he talked about would love the way he played with the tradition and and how he bent it around. Yeah. Yeah. The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and the unexpected in classic film. Marine Davies' romantic farce Beverly of Graustark, is a brilliant melding of her earlier costume romances like When Knighthood Was in Flower with her later proto-screwball style as in The Patsy and Show People. Marion is boy-crazy American co-ed Beverly, who, in a twist of fate, must switch places with her cousin, Prince Oscar, heir to the throne of Graustark. Along the way, she hires handsome Antonio Moreno as her bodyguard and winds up falling for him. There are mistaken identities, intrigue, disguises, a chase, a sword fight, and a big fancy ball. L.A. Beat writes... Marion Davies' unappreciated comic abilities get a fine showcase in this frothy switched identities film. The 4K Blu-ray drawn from the Davies collection at the Library of Congress looks pristine and includes the finale in two-strip technicolor. J.B. Kaufman writes, Director Sidney Franklin keeps all this moving at a lively pace, maintaining a firm but light touch over the proceedings. It's beautifully photographed with an occasional stylistic flourish. The color scenes serve to underscore a satisfying conclusion to the story. Complete with a first rate organ score by Ben Modell, we who love silent films have cause for celebration. Restored by the Library of Congress, produced for DVD and Blu-ray by Ben Modell, and Undercrank Productions Library of Congress release Associate Producer Crystal Cooley. Beverly of Graustark is available in an all-region DVD or Blu-ray from Amazon, Deep Discount, Critics' Choice, Movies Unlimited, Wow HD, or wherever you find classic film. I had the privilege of having a conversation with a silent film musician who does no improvisation, and that's Rick Benjamin, the founder Ah. and conductor of the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra. We had a wonderful talk about that, about accompanying film, and about the dates he's doing with portions of symphony orchestras. So sometimes he moonlights away from the Paragon, does those own, own appearances, and that is going to be a bonus part two to this episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. Rick's, Rick's d- does some great, great work. He has the the physical sheet music of a, of a collection of about 350 mood cues that I I, I had uh, for a long time, and uh, I couldn't think of a better home for the material to go to after it had been scanned as part of a project by the silent film sound and music archive kendra Leonard's organization but he does great work and if you want to hear that music used exactly as it is in the, the cue sheet of the way people heard it in the teens and 20s rick and the paragon is a great event to go see
2: well the Paragon may play cues exactly the same way each time, but you have the experience often of playing for films that you played before, so it seems like you play something exactly the same, only different. That it's, there's an experience of returning to a familiar film and having, having both a fresh take and having a history with that film. People will ask, do you play the same music every time? The
1: answer is, it's not note for note the same, but my intent is always the same in the way I underscore a scene. Unless something happens at a show where I suddenly have a different reaction. With the cameraman, one thing that I have always done with the moment, the kiss in the rain in front of uh, Marceline Day's character's apartment is because it's... Again, one of these moments where there's a stillness and we just hold on Buster's reaction and maybe the director trusted his acting chops a little bit more. There is that moment where he's standing there after she's gone back inside, at a full profile to us, shivering from the rain, reacting to it. One way to approach it would be to swell with a romance or love theme because it's been this big romantic moment. But what I do is the opposite and I pull back to almost nothing, and occasionally I will just take my hands off the keys for a second to get the audience's brains and imagination to zoom in to his emotion, because it's all up there on the screen. You don't need to push it, and then as he comes down the steps, slowly transition into supporting the elation his character is feeling. It's not a big Franz Waxman swelling of violins. But just sort of slowly in, in an upper register uh, supporting that and then gradually building until Harry Gribbon the cop shows up so that's what we're gonna hear this is uh, again a Steinway A although it's an older instrument than the one I play at St. Francis but it's been rebuilt and reconditioned it's in great shape with an audience of uh, very enthusiastic people discovering the cameraman from Buster Keaton so this clip starts I think it's right after they get out of the car and you'll hear when it gets quieter and quieter and quieter that's that's the moment right after the kiss and then it goes on from there this is live in performance at the Oxford community center in oxford maryland Live in performance at the Oxford Community Center in Oxford, Maryland, just off the Chesapeake Bay area. Yours truly accompanying, The Cameraman, with Buster Keaton. One of the first shows I ever played of the film was an event for the Rivertown Film Society in Nyack. Uh, it was introduced by Bill Irwin, the actor and clown. And he talks about one of his favorite moments in the film it happens just before it's the button on the whole sequence at the swimming pool where there's a guy who who isn't Wallace Beery but looks like Wallace Beery in a Panama hat and who's uh, rapping to Marceline Day. And Keaton, now fully dressed, comes up behind him and gets bumped and disappears <laughs> out of frame. And then there's a, another moment where Keaton suddenly zips right back into the shot. <laughs> and again... That is aided by the fact that they're cranking at 18 and projecting at 24, but it's this way he just sort of slides right back into the <laughs>
2: shot that Bill found so, so enjoyable. I think Walter Kerr talks about, um, in Our Hospitality, the wheels that disappear from the screen, and the camera doesn't move, the camera doesn't track them, and you're yeah. allowed to forget the wheels, but then they come back. And that's part of, you know, the Buster's universe is fixed. It's not flexible. Just because it left the frame doesn't mean it's gone forever. <laughs>
1: right. And it's, it's one of my favorite things about the silent film universe is that unless the people on screen indicate that they're hearing something, whatever it is doesn't make a sound. So when the train wheels roll into the shot and hit Buster and Jack Duffy, it's a surprise. It's, it's the same principle of the silent film universe that makes the ending of one week work and (laughs) and it may and and the reason that that same gag which he repurposed in one of his early sound films not work at all because you hear the train coming Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a wonderful selective hearing it's it's the the old if a tree falls in the woods and Buster Keaton doesn't look get on that he hears it doesn't make a sound no it does not (laughs) until it enters the shot and it's it's one of my it's one of my favorite parts of the silent film
2: universe I always like talking about it So Ben, one sequence in The Cameraman presents a challenge which may not have been such a challenge a generation ago, but is a cultural problem today.
1: Yeah, it's certainly something to think about how you're going to handle, which is the Tong War sequence. And there's a lot of silent movies or films from the 20s and mid-20s where there's a sequence that takes place in Chinatown and depicting a Chinatown in a city as a tourist attraction. There's a whole sequence at the beginning of Paths to Paradise with Raymond Griffith that has one like that. And there's a sequence, the second half of Feet of Mud with Harry Langdon. So there's this sequence. And, you know, the question is, how do you cover it? How do you cover it? What do you play musically? For decades, you know, when you have something like that, a, a pianist or organist might play something that sounds like "quote unquote" Chinese with parallel fourths, fourths and fifths. And, you know that, uh, that 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 thing. I mean, you and hear it in in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Kung Fu fighting that that song from the seventies, and it's it's this thing that it's been around since vaudeville. I would imagine it's it's meant I, to ev- it's meant to evoke. I think originally it began with the pentatonic scale. So one of the things I'm often asking myself in preparing uh, to play for something is is that necessary? You can see that it's you know, Chinese people uh, on screen. Do you need to reinforce it by playing something like that? What I thought I would try this time Is not doing that at all It's two gangs having a big fight With people throwing things and attacking each other And shooting them You don't need to do anything that reminds the audience uh, Where these people are from ethnically What I did at this one show Is I just thought, well let's just underscore the battle And play battle music And and comedy music Because it does go back and forth From uh, anxiety to little comedy moments With Josephine the monkey Um, So it is something that we, I think, as a compass we we all need to sort of take a look at. The last time I played for the general, usually in the sequence where Keaton's on the train and the two different armies march behind him, I would play stuff piece that that's associated with the north and the northern army and something associated with the Southern Army to help people know that these two different sides going by, because I know years ago I didn't quite catch it myself. And, and this time I played, the last time I played for the General, I didn't do that. I just played something that was in a 2-4 march tempo, and then when the other army marched by, I went into 6-8. It was yip, bup, 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 yip, bup, bup, bup. like that, just so it was a different musical feel, so you're not hitting people over the head with the Bonnie Blue flag and Dixie. This is the first time I played for the cameraman when I thought, oh, you know,
2: maybe I don't need to do that. You know, there's two principles here. One is it's probably always better to play the story. Yeah. Play the story and the characters. And secondly, we're now, we're talking about films that are approaching 100 years old. Yeah. And, and cultural references that are even older. Marvin Hatley used to complain that when Stan Laurel ha- handled a hat in a movie, Stan wanted him to play the song, Where Did You Get That Hat? Yeah. Bom, 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 bom. yeah. I only and, yeah. know that because my grandmother, who was born in 1895 sang that song but uh, you know i am uh, uh, retirement age now <laughs> <laughs> so you know these cultural references especially song titles oh th- uh, yeah there's a lot of people who don't know what they are anyway so you know they're not useful uh,
1: in many many cases yeah but you're you're right the idea is play the story so what i did is i thought okay well we can see the film We see who's in it. We know where it's happening. The title cards indicate that it's a tongue war, whatever that is. (laughs) And let's just play the battle and the comedy. And at least from where I was sitting, I, I felt like it worked. And the first time I saw I Was Born But I started yes. it was part of a Japanese series and all the other films were really depressing and dark and I started playing and within two minutes I realized oh <laughs> and I completely shifted <laughs> into Leroy Shields mode exactly and it, and it came to life for a long time you know this is a typical thing that film accompanies when a black person would show up you'd play ragtime and I'm like yeah I can tell he's African American without this Joplin I can tell <laughs> that there's no need to do that or the Irish or Italian I mean it's not at a moment where we're trying not to do that quite so much, it, it, it actually turns out you don't need to.
2: Yeah. You alluded to the story you've told about the parallel between this falling in love scene in The Cameraman and the beginning of the song Singing in the Rain, from the film Singing yeah. in the Rain. We yeah. talked about it and we uh, incorporated the audio from that clip. And that's going to be linked in the show notes, which gives me a chance to say every week we do ask you to rate and review episodes, which is great. But also I forget to plug the fact that we have very detailed show notes, which have got all kinds of hyperlinks to not only things we talk directly about, but often sort of side subjects that are incidental to what came up. The try just to uh, offer you a little enrichment. So go to silentfilmmusic.com and look at those show notes. There'll be a link
1: to the show notes in the podcast posting itself, so you'll have no trouble finding it. But thank you, Kerr, for putting all those footnotes together and links. It's fun. I have a handful of in-person shows booked, and coming up this next few months, you can always check my website, silentfilmmusic.com, to... Stay updated as things percolate and congeal. But you can also get on my email list. That way, I will send something to you and you'll get it. And you'll always know something's coming up. There's a Women and the Silent Screen conference in the beginning of June up at Columbia. And on Sunday, June 5th, I'll be playing in the afternoon for two programs of serials with the uh, quote-unquote Serial Queens. For more information about what I'll be playing for, Kerr will put a, a link in the show notes. I will continue, of course, every month at the Cinema Arts Center and sometimes virtually. In July, I'll be at the Lyric Theater in Blacksburg, Virginia on July 23rd for a program of, I think, Buster Keaton shorts and also the movie Wings. And then in August, I will be at the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, accompanying Buster Keaton in our hospitality. Boy, you're right, Curry. It's just all Keaton everywhere. Uh, Our hospitality on an instrument that is just gigantic it is a uh, I'm looking at a picture so I can count correctly it's a five manual instrument and just uh, two big walls of stop tabs in a very large space it is a slow melt it is mostly Keaton but not just me all my fellow film accompanists are playing for different things different places and so if you can't catch a stream that I'm doing but still want to see silent film with live music keep your eyes peeled and don't forget There's an appendix to this episode, an extra bonus mini episode uh, where Kerr will be interviewing the music director of the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra, Rick Benjamin, about his working with mood cues from the silent film era in an orchestral setting. This has been episode 47 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, presenter, educator, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and I am joined, as always, by... My co host and co producer, Kerr Lockhart. Hey,
2: Ben, and hey, listen, uh, any of you programmers uh, for series out there, let's show some Chaplin or some Fairbanks or, hey, Marion Davies. We got a lot of Marion Davies movies for you.
1: Oh, yeah, I have DCPs of just uh, just about all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and let's give a, a, a round of applause to your dog who managed to not <laughs> interrupt. Or try to get, get a cameo on the episode. We had the last two or three. <laughs> so everything worked out just just great. But thank you so much for keeping the show going, keeping the, the edits happening, the show notes getting getting put together, and getting this podcast back up into third gear and out of first, Kerr. I really appreciate all
2: you're doing. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. This has been the Silent Film Music Podcast. We'll be talking and uh, playing for you again soon, wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Take
2: care.